0: The Guardian.
1: Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, Channel 4 wins a BAFTA for the Paralympics, but it comes at a cost. There's good news and bad news at Newsnight, it gets a new editor, but it has to apologise after more on-screen mistakes. Plus, Radio 1 DJ Nick Grimshaw suffers a baptism of fire after he loses nearly a million listeners in the Ray Jars. And we look back at the Sony Awards and find out why former Radio 1 Breakfast DJ Mike Smith isn't happy. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Later on the show, we'll be talking to Emily Bell about a double snooping scandal in the US, which is really rather shocking. But first, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lisa Campbell, editor of Broadcast Magazine, and by Mr Matt Deegan of media consultancy Folder Media, who also happens to run the Fun Kids radio station. Welcome both.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: It was uh, Sony week this week. In fact, it was BAFTAs week as well. Did any, either of you guys go to both?
0: BAFTAs. Not both.
1: Not both. Matt?
3: No, it was Sony's
1: only. Ah, oh, well, see, I did BAFTAs and the Sony's, so uh, big gold star. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Looking at me, clearly not. (laughs) Right, well, uh, we start this week with the Sonys, uh, where it was a good night for Radio 5 Live, which was named Station of the Year, largely in recognition, I think, of all its Olympics and Paralympics programming, and also a good night for Radio 4, where the Today programme won, and for John Humphreys, who won the News Journalism Award of the Year. Let's hear what John had to say after winning his award. If you work for the Today programme,
4: you're working for a very powerful machine. And you get access that other people don't have simply because it's the Today programme. And it just makes your job 100%. I mean, working as I've done as well in the past for little outfits and having to struggle to get any access to anybody at all, uh, it's exactly the opposite. And it just makes your job 1,000%
1: easier. I mean, you sit there and they come to you, you know. And one of those who came to you, of course, was George Entwistle, who you paid tribute to in your acceptance speech today. Well, yes. Um... Because there's
4: always the danger when you concede, as is obviously the case, that um, I've got a couple of awards this year on account of that interview because it was memorable in the sense that people remember it and it apparently had an effect, though I have no doubt at all he, he would have resigned anyway. I don't think my interview pushed him over the edge or anything like that. I think it would have happened. The timing was, of course, interesting. But yeah, I paid tribute him because he was gracious about it to me personally, which is nice. Because he's an old friend i mean i've known george for many many years and you know i took no pleasure out of doing what i did but he understood exactly why i had to do it and he knew when he and this is the point he knew when he came out of the program what sort of interview it was going to be and he made no attempt to to do what skilful politicians do and I put the word skillful in inverted commas if you like which is you know a bit of ducking and dodging and diving and weaving and saying oh no the question you really meant to ask me was so and so and yes when you ask him whether he didn't even read the story instead of answering it they would say well you do understand how and then you go off onto another whereas George simply said no wow <laughs> and and it was perfectly obvious from his whole demeanor throughout that interview and it became increasingly obvious that he knew that he was in very, very, very serious trouble. And the Today Programme is in rude health, six million-plus listeners. Seven. But se- seven. Oh, yeah. We actually hit 7.2, and it's backed off a bit now, as it always does. I mean, it does gotten down a bit. But but our new benchmark now is seven. Yeah, seven million. It's and you took Chris Morales.
1: Did you? Were there by one point? I'm, is that
4: right? I'm, I'm delighted. I can't tell you how delighted I'm to say, yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Chris, but yeah, great. Look, to have a, a, a mostly relentlessly serious radio programme, at that time of the morning, pulling in that sort of audience is, I think it's great.
1: But changing times too with Kerry Thomas, promoted to a new job at the BBC, so you're looking for a new editor now? Yeah, I am personally utterly devastated that Kerry's
4: going, he's he's a great editor, great editor, seven years, I've been through seven editors, um, none of them for that long, and Kerry has been phenomenal, Uh, God, he's going to be missed, well, we're already missing him, obviously, inevitably and uh, we will have a new
1: editor, I hope, by the end of next week. The other sense that Today is changing is lots of people talking about you know another uh, woman presenter on Today. I mean, c- can you give us any sense about sort of when, how, or whether that's going to happen? I can tell you that it ought to happen, I believe.
4: Obviously, we should have another woman. It's, we should not have only one woman presenter on the Today programme, clearly. I mean, that just goes without saying. How? I have no idea. We have five presenters, one of us has to go in order for us to be able to take on another one, because six is too many. Five is the right number, six is too many, so somebody's got to go. The way that George Entwistle put it when he was director general was to say the next presenter of the Today Programme will be a woman. But that assumes obviously that somebody is going to go. Now they may well look at me and my huge age and a wrinkled brow and say about time he... Uh, was put out to, to grass, in which case my successor, I have no doubt, would be a woman. Who it would be, oh, not going to get me there. <laughs> <laughs> but you said you're not more going anywhere. More you... than my job's worth, Gov. More than my life is worth. <laughs> but you're not going anywhere anytime soon, you said, if you, if you signed that new contract? I haven't signed a new contract because none of us has. Um, because they've got this, the BBC is in a bit of a muddle over what to do with presenters because of these service companies that so many have and the row with the land revenue and all that fuss about, you know, were they using their companies to avoid paying tax? I don't have one so it doesn't apply to me, but nonetheless the BBC is rethinking the whole thing about freelance uh, presenters, you know, and, and should they maybe be taken on the staff. John, last contract question. So when are you tied to the programme till as it stands? My contract ended in February. They asked me to do an extension of six months, then they asked me to add another three months on, so um, it's up at the end of that period, it's up at the end of November. What happens then, I simply don't know.
1: But one person who wasn't entirely happy with proceedings was Mike Smith and uh, delighted to say the former Radio One man joins us now. Mike, hello. Hi. Uh, you, you painted a, a pretty grim picture of the Sonys, but in particular, the contribution of, of, of commercial radio, which was in your, on your on your blog. T- t- tell us what you had to say.
2: Well, um, I, uh, I'm a judge of the Sony Awards. So what am I doing criticising the Sony Awards? I'm not so much criticising the awards as the standard of entries that go into it. I mean, the ceremony is one thing, and I do object to paying £40 for a bottle of House Plonk in the Grosvenor House, but I I really object to the standard of entry that comes in, not just from commercial radio. Um, I I listened to some pretty dire stuff this year from the BBC as well. I, I I mean, Nick Grimshaw's show, I have to say, the entry I listened to for that was plainly put together by someone who didn't care Um, or didn't know what they were doing, either or.
1: Well, Grimshaw's entry aside, I mean, it, Matt, it, it, it a—I said it was a good week for Five Live and, and Humphreys, but it, it didn't feel like it was a bad night for a commercial radio in the sense that um, only Christian O'Connell, out of the big kind of national commercial radio presenters, won nothing. Had it not been for him, it, you know, it, it would have been down to sort of the more minor awards.
3: Yes, no, it, it was a bad night for commercial radio. Obviously nice that Classic FM uh, won Brands of the Year, uh, though not station, not going to Five Live. Uh, it's interesting, best, uh, best stations and best people don't always win, best entries win. Uh, and I think, as Mike kind of said there, you know, you can have, I mean, I've judged before, and you, you know a program's brilliant, uh, but you don't necessarily see that reflected in entry. And I guess vice versa as well, kind of the same in, in lots of uh, award ceremonies. I thought this year it seemed quite a divided room. Uh, everybody was looking after kind of their own areas and thinking about whether that's sports or new, uh, hard news or looking at uh, certain elements of commercial radio. And there wasn't a lot that united the room, which I thought was a bit of a shame.
1: And Mike, on your blog post, you talked about the changes that have been going on commercial radio in terms of ownership, and yeah. I guess there's been lots of rebranding. And, uh, but you said what was missing was investment and, and passion, and you said if that doesn't change, then you, well, you painted a pretty bleak uh, you know, picture of its, its future when, when digital was meant to sort of turn things around for the commercial sector.
2: Well, the commercial sector does still... Command 51% of the audience in the UK, something like that. And I I talk about the passion of people who listen to radio. Um, You can't take radio away from people without them complaining. You can take away a load of the television and they won't say a thing. Radio, you know, is owned by the people. It's free in this country. And we don't want to end up in a situation like Sirius FM in the States where you're paying a monthly subscription for it. But we've got to train the people. I, I hear people on the air and hear people, you know, talking at the Sony's who They can't talk. I mean, nobody has sat down and actually trained them how to do the job of how to communicate with the listener. A lot of the shows I listen to, and this is through the judging as well as driving around in my car and and listening to radio around the country, I feel like I'm not included as a listener. I feel like I'm being ejected out of the conversation and brought in when it suits them. They're just having fun in the studio on their own. And it's not fun for us listening. And this came through an awful lot in commercial radio. They are still trying to follow... The zoo format, which is more than 30 years old. I remember Radio One in the mid 80s having pressure put on me by Radio One to do the zoo format, and I, I didn't want to do it. You know, it was then done, I think, really, Simon Mayo brought it into Radio One, and Steve Wright particularly. You know, these formats we've got to look at because nothing's developing, nothing's moving on, nobody's investing. They're just paying off the shareholders, trying to make some profit out of it to keep their shareholders happy, and moving on and doing jobs as cheaply as they possibly can.
1: Lisa, what, what do you hear when you tune in, especially to commercial radio? Are you as uh, as pessimistic as Mike, or, or do um, you see cause for hope?
0: Well, I, th- I think there is some truth in that, actually, and I also think that the lack of investment is part of the reason why some of those entries weren't good enough in the Sony Awards. I mean, the the, the teams working in commercial radio have been so squeezed, and, and budgets are so tight. So it you know you can you can see it in the entries, you can hear it on screen, and I think that point about you know mates together in the room having a laugh together and forgetting about the listener is is quite true of a lot of stations. And the, and the radio is supposed to be about immediacy and it should be you know it should feel an intimate experience for the listener you know that, that you should be sort of almost there in the room with them not that you're listening into some party somewhere
3: there's some quite interesting stuff i think happening in breakfast radio commercially three different examples so number one a breakfast show in london at capital and that's mm, an interesting that's show true. that's d- done quite well xfm you got john holmes new traditionally bbc talent uh, moving over given some freedom to do interesting things and then magic most popular commercial radio station very music orientated not particularly personality driven uh, but kind of doing the numbers so i don't think there's necessarily one way to win um, and you can see that when you've got successful reference shows from chris evans to today to capital i think there are, are different options uh, for different people but-
1: Mike, yeah, it sounded like you wanted to come in on casualty. Well, I
2: just... because The, the Ray Jars, of course, have come out since the Sony Awards the other night, and, and the Ray Jars have sort of underlined, really, what I've been saying, and I'm, I'm not being smug about it, but, you know, the number one breakfast show in London is, and always has been, the Today Show. You know, it just it, it just doesn't shift from that position. You're talking about the pathetic battle that goes on for number one in the commercial sector. Look at the share figures there and you'll realise that capital actually is a total disaster in London. Look at its figures since 1999. Look at the graph. And it's going downhill and downhill. And there's this fumbling around at the bottom of the barrel trying to find an audience between Hart and Smooth and Capital and all the rest. It, it's a, It's a mess. And the BBC are just running away with it.
1: Uh, yeah, Matt, well you actually you, I think you broke down you mentioned there, um, Nick Grimshaw, he lost about a million listeners uh, in the in the six months since he's taken over from from Chris Moyles. And at the same time, presumably lots of those listeners have gone to Chris Evans as he well, he's nearly got to ten million I think, but biggest ever, certainly Sort of makes Wogan look like, a, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> what was Terry Wogan compared to the kind of audience Evans gets now? Um, but, Matt, you, you've broken down. Uh, I hesitate to use the phrase drill down. Uh, but that's exactly what you've done with Nick Grimshaw's uh, Radio 1 audience. And he's, yeah. he's lost listeners. I mean, well, it's, it's clear, tell us about
3: it. It's clearly not a great quarter for Nick. I'm, I'm loath to really have a go at it. You know, this is a new breakfast show. Uh, we've only got two quarters of figures on it. It does take at least a year to, take, to make any breakfast show uh, really kick in. Difficulty now is the radio industry is so competitive that you haven't got the time uh, to let that show develop. They had a situation where they had to do something very, very different to Moyle's, and that was kind of Plan A, and then Plan B for it was it to find its own find its own way. They've done a, half the job, uh, so three quarters of their losses are thirty five pluses, the kind of people that they don't want on the station. That's been their aim. twenty five thirty fours took a big hit, which was again part of the what they want to achieve. Fifteen twenty fours s took a dive. I mean, that was that was sort of the the, the killer for the plan down two hundred thousand quarter on quarter uh, but again as a percentage of that uh, of that demo it's not huge it's not extremely large profile wise so looking at that percentage compared to the rest of the, the the station it's increasing and higher they've still got a long way to go and a lot of that's just traditional breakfast radio stuff that's about them working out exactly what they're trying to do how that team work together i think they deserve another couple of quarters to get it there
1: and Mike, you've been on the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. I mean, what would your advice be to, to Radio 1 controller Ben Cooper now that yeah, he has had, know, you know, I some sort the Cap- of churn I
2: Capital Breakfast Show as well. Um, I mean, and, some sort you know, of churn was,
1: in, was inevitable, but I guess he could have gone for a safer bet, maybe Greg James, who would have been well, sort of less of a Marmite he, character. But he's got to hold his nerve now, hasn't he? He can't, he can't start chopping and changing or thinking about that.
2: No, Matt's quite right. You've got to give it a chance to settle in. I mean, the, the thing is, look back in history, and I apologise for the noise of a military Chinook going past my window. Um, if you look back in history, you'll see that when Wogan originally left The Breakfast Show and Derek Jameson took over, the figures dropped quite dramatically. And then eventually... Derek Jameson, towards the end of his reign, overtook the previous Terry Wogan figures. Um, you know, the, the audience starts to get comfortable, which is something they don't like at first. So I, I see a lot of heat at the moment on Nick. Um, he needs to be given a chance. He does need to adjust his presentation, and I think he does need to look at the, the team he's got around him, and, and no doubt Ben Cooper is going to be thinking about that himself. But the audience will start to drift back when they get bored with what they're hearing elsewhere. The um, Chris is a very comfortable show to listen to for people across generations, and this brings me to a point which I have hammered on about for 30 years, and nobody will listen. so maybe somebody will listen now. The BBC doesn 't need to be socio demographic. The BBC should target its radio by attitude, not age. It is wrong for the BBC Trust to hand down to Ben Cooper and say, "Make it younger it 's irrelevant it 's absolutely irrelevant. Look at what young people are saying. And I've read through tweets and blogs and all sorts. And a lot of young people are saying, I don't listen to Nick Grimshaw because he's a kid. He's an adult trying to be a kid. I want someone I can look up to. You know, e- even in the Moyles days, the, 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 when the audience was older, he had a load of young kids listening to him who maybe shouldn't be listening
3: to him. I think it's interesting that the, the demographic uh, challenge, um, obviously it's something they've got, that Ben Cooper's got from the trust. And, and hearing Ben speak a couple of times this year, um, he's doing what he can to achieve that but i think he recognizes that you know what he calls trendy dads uh, who want to stick around listening to to radio one are going to be difficult to shift
1: we've got to leave it there mike mike smith that's very <laughs> coming to join us thanks very much
2: thank you and lisa could you please start writing about radio in broadcast again um yes <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: done. well my thanks to mike smith there uh, matt and lisa are sticking around but first it's time for the media talk notice board nope i hadn't heard of it either
5: Hello, I'm Maria Williams. I'm the founder of Sound Women, which is a group for women in radio. And we are holding our first ever Sound Women Festival this weekend on the afternoon of Saturday, the 18th of May we have a full afternoon of events uh, we have speakers talks workshops there's a workshop on imposter syndrome we have a fabulous woman dame stephanie shirley coming who came to the uk on kinder transport um, called herself steve in business to get taken more seriously made a fortune and has now given away over 67 million pounds to charity so we're very keen the theme of our festival is inspiration we're very keen to draw from uh, people in all walks of life outside side radio as well Uh, we have Eve Pollard the first lady of Fleet Street we also have people who are at the vanguard of radio so we have Radio 1's Gemma Kearney and James Everton from the Hits Radio talking about kind of DIY projects and how to do stuff yourself We've got an amazing woman who broadcasts from North London to the whole of Zimbabwe, having been marched out of her Zimbabwean radio studio at gunpoint at various stages. She now broadcasts uh, from the UK. And we have just a whole host of kind of people who are really essential to making radio work. Um, And we hope that people will leave the festival energised, informed, but also really inspired and determined to kind of go out there and crash through whatever glass ceiling, commissioning process or boss might be holding them back. Uh, It starts at one o'clock in the radio theatre of BBC Broadcasting House. So it's very grand, uh, but we will be having the festival theme. There will be wellies and a Glastonbury vibe about the whole thing. We really want it to feel informal and fun. And if you'd like to get a ticket, then if you just go to soundwomen.co.uk, all the details are on the website.
1: And if you can't make the Sound Women Conference, then there's a podcast with all the highlights details on their website. And Lisa, this comes at a, a timely time, beautifully put, uh, because uh, I think you've just pointed out, along with The Guardian, about the, uh, the how very few women over 50 there are on, a, on the small screen.
0: Just 18%, in fact, uh, which is really shocking. I think everyone would agree. that. And, and Harriet Harman, who's responsible for bringing this to light, um, you know, says that older women are disappearing into a black hole and, and it, that would seem to be the case. Um, I actually went in to see Harriet Harman a, a while ago because Broadcast been running an expert women campaign. So we talked about that as well as older women on screen because it was around the time of uh, the Miriam O'Reilly case. Her concern was, um, well, where are the numbers? And, and with the abolition of the broadcasting and equalities training Regulator, they don't exist anymore. So she asked a question in in the house about you know what's going to happen. You know the answer was was very little so she had to take it upon herself to write to the broadcasters to, to get this and so you know anecdotally we know we know it's a problem and we know it's been happening for a long time um, but it's only when you get the hard evidence like this that broadcasters have to say you know hold my hands up I'm gonna have to acknowledge it and do something about it it's not a problem that's restricted to older women on screen right um, and we've the latest research we're going to be publishing in next week's issue shows that there's a six to one ratio of female correspondence compared to men and in fact on BBC News, 9 out of 10 correspondents are male on the flagship news at 10.
1: OK, Lisa, well, thanks for that. Next up, Channel 4. Now, a theme is going to start emerging here, I think, when I suggest there's been good news and there's been bad news. So the good news for Channel 4 was that it beat the BBC's Olympics coverage, the sport and live event BAFTA, which meant the BBC's Olympics went home empty-handed. But the bad news, Lisa, was that Channel 4 um, ended up... £29 million pounds in the red last year. Now, this clearly wasn't uh, entirely the fault of the money it splurged on the Paralympics, but um, it's a big change to last year when I think they, were, they made profits of £41 million.
0: And it's actually its first loss in a decade. So, effectively, the channel has dipped into its reserves to, to fund programming, um, including the Olympics, but across the board, and that's to boost ratings. And it's questionable about whether that's paid off yet, because share is down on the main channel and the portfolio itself is also down. And despite that, um, the bosses have got bonuses, which is really the the story which has attracted a lot of controversy for, for Channel 4 this week.
1: Yes, that's right. It's the BBC that's associated with being rewarded for failure, although maybe, <laughs> maybe failure is a bit harsh. Uh, uh, Matt, Channel, the Channel 4 guys, David Abraham and, and Jay Hunt said that uh, spending this extra money meant that they could make the Paralympics business into something that they could be proud of and also stick in the awards cabinet. But also they said that if they hadn't done that, then the, they'd have suffered a, a lot more at the hands of BBC, which had that extraordinary sort of summer of sport last year.
3: I mean, for them finding new ways to generate commercial impacts for those main channels, uh, it is the Paralympics... Uh, the next go at their at their big brother replacement. Um, I think also what's interesting is that as a business, you know, Channel 4 is a business repping UK TV channels uh, and I think now BT, the BT Sport channels as well, how it can... Um, Reduce its reliance on its um, its main operation. And Lisa,
1: in in a sense, Channel Four they're sort of damned if they do, damned if they don't with the, with the amount of money they've got in, in the bank. Because if they have too much, people say, well, you know, why are you why are you sitting on three hundred million quid? Aren't you going to invest it in something? But at the same time, when they do invest it and, and take a hit, people say, oh, hang on a minute, you made a big loss. So there's
0: a, a balance to be struck. I think it's if you can look at whether the strategy is working and. It is struggling, really. I mean, there's a a lot of noise around the Channel at the moment, and and the annual report really this week has has added to that. And I think in the industry, people feel very passionately about Channel 4 because it gave birth to the independent sector, and they grew up with it, and the people really have a sort of loyalty towards Channel 4. So when it's struggling or when things are going wrong, they sort of take it personally. There are real concerns that share is down this quarter by 12% already. Um, So we're in May, and so between May and September... They've really got to work hard to get some rapid increase in share because in September last year, of course, they had the Paralympics. So we know they're going to be massively down and share then. Then you're into autumn and you've got the dogfight between the BBC and ITV with their entertainment juggernauts and Channel 4 traditionally struggle at this time of year. So it's not really looking very good for for the rest of the year, given that they're still struggling to find those long running, big hit like Big Brother, you know, the way it's structured is that it needs things like that so that then it can do the one-offs around the edge of the, the schedule, the sort of public service broadcasting sort of traditionally that won't get the big audiences. So it hasn't got the new stuff coming through, but also some of the bankers that's traditionally relied on um, embarrassing bodies, um, those sorts of things aren't performing as well. Even One Born Every Minute when that came down was a million down on the, on the first series. So, you know, there are problems
1: some of their big new guns, uh, like the the Mary Porter shows, for instance, and the uh, Apprentice-like show presented by the uh, the former Dragons Den, whose name yeah. completely escapes me,
0: Hilary devey, So the they interns, were big flops. yeah, and had to be moved till to a graveyard slot, basically. It is struggling.
1: And Matt, Channel 4's strategy has been a bit like that, reflected in a lot of commercial radio and elsewhere in the media in the sense that they've launched these digital channels like E4, More 4, Film 4, which are all free, trying to make up for the, for the loss of the core channel. But, I mean, if, unless the core channel sort of stays above some sort of critical level, well, I mean, it has to do that. Otherwise, you know, you feel you feel everything's going to suffer.
3: Yeah, but I mean, the world's changed. It's great when the, you had limited competitors on analogue platforms, then uh, you could make the money. Uh, that world does not exist anymore. And whether that's repping other people, trying to do digital Impacts on 4OD, you, know, you have to find a new way to support what you do. I think it's interesting they've kind of pulled away from investment from some of the, those spin off channels. Um, and maybe that's a, an effect on, on the impacts that they can deliver. Um, but it comes back to hits, doesn't it?
0: Great we, programs yeah. that people want to watch. And advertisers still want broad reach and they, and they want variety. And, and you know, the main channel is the one to deliver that. And if, um, you know, I mean, it'd be the same with ITV. If ITV1 wasn't, wasn't delivering, ITV3 isn't going to make. The numbers up. It's interesting around the, the digital stuff because today they've just announced um, new data advertising. They're going to be more um, offering targeted advertising around the, the digital products and and sort of you know that thing of knowing your audience much more and being able to sell to a whole whole portfolio so they've got people you know Microsoft and BT and people like that all signed up to it so you know it's making good inroads into that and digital revenues were up as well I think from 24 million to 36 million Um, but you know as David Abraham um, acknowledged it's a low base and it's going to take a long time to grow that so uh, again another challenge.
1: Okay, well, next up on my uh, my platter of good week bad weeks is uh, BBC Newsnight, and the bad news was uh, that they had to apologise uh, on Thursday after more on screen mistakes. This time about a report which was broadcast back uh, last August, uh, which is very critical of the uh, military charity Help for Heroes. The good news is it's uh, finally got a new editor, who is the Guardian's deputy editor, um, Ian Katz. Uh, Matt, first up the mistakes. This is almost well, this goes back sort of pre savile doesn't it? When Peter Rippon was still in charge. So. Uh, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's another one to add to their long list of, you know... Well,
3: each of those mistakes is less of an issue, so this one almost went under the, uh, under the radar. But really, we should ask you the question, what is this new hire like? Will it be a, a good addition? Uh, you, you know him from The Guardian. And
0: he's still
1: your boss. He is indeed, Mr <laughs> Ian Katz, that's right, yes. Well, I mean, what, what I would say about the appointment is that it is the, uh, the latest in a seemingly long line, Lisa, of, um, of, of print journalists who were who are getting jobs, at the, not just at the BBC, but in television. You know, yeah, following. interesting
0: post-Leveson as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I think um, it, it's interesting, I think, because... Obviously, it's a whole different set of skills, communicating in pictures um, to, to print journalism. And he's obviously a brilliant journalist and, and, and a great newsman. And I suppose as long as he's got a really strong team of directors and producers around him um, who, who can fill in some of those gaps, then, you know, I see no reason why it can't work. Um, of course, there are, have been attempts in the past for something like the mirror group having it's you know moving into television and you know and that didn't work so it's it's not that straightforward a transition to go from print into tv um as as you might expect
1: and matt tony hall's talked about you know they haven't implanted the the cuts and news night as they have elsewhere in the bbc and said that you know if it needs more money it'll Give it more money, but, um, which is a great thing because Newsnight is a, is, is a very important news programme. But at the same time, you know, the danger is that they're sort of prioritising a programme that gets maybe an audience of, you know, seven, eight 800,000, whereas other parts of the BBC, you know, maybe not viewed by a you know, certain sort of metropolitan elite, some might say, are, you know, are, are suffering disproportionately.
3: Uh, I is that, think is that a fair you have to value things in different ways. You know, Radio 4 does disproportionately well in London and the South East. It's one of those things. I think with Newsnight where you've got a flagship, Newsnight and Today programme tend to lead the agenda. Uh, and whilst they might have uh, lower audiences for those time slots than people, well, in Newsnight's case, than they'd like, um, it's still an important part of the BBC's news output. Uh, and so to spend a few more quid on it doesn't seem a bad thing.
1: And would you keep Paxman, both of you, or would you try and have a fresh start and move on maybe with Eddie Mayer? What would you do? In, in, uh, in fewer than 10 words. <laughs> um, a
0: fresh start with Eddie Mayer.
1: And Matt? Uh,
3: maybe there's a, a changed role for
1: Paxo. Well, thank you very much. And uh, my thanks both to Elise uh, Campbell and to Matt Deegan.
2: The Guardian Active Summit is returning to London on the 9th of July. Join hundreds of media and tech executives at this one-day event and discover how leading international companies are harnessing technology to change their business and the world. Speakers include Google, Ericsson, Raspberry Pi and more. Plus, save 20% with the early bird offer when you book before Wednesday 22nd of May. The Guardian Activate Summit. Visit guardian.co.uk slash activate slash London to find out more.
1: I'm joined for the second part of the show by Emily Bell, who is, of course, the director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, and uh, in a former life, not very, uh, not very long ago, former life, of course, uh, director of digital content for Guardian News and Media. Emily, how are you?
6: I'm very well, thank you, John.
1: Uh, well, tell us, all, tell us what's happened here with the Associated Press and, and Barack Obama.
6: Yes, well, it has been it's been, it has been something of a shocking week actually for the uh, U.S. press. So. Uh, This story revolves around the Department of Justice seizing, secretly, it has to be said, phone records from the Associated Press. Now, the actual uh, requisition of the phone records took place um, in May last year, so it was was some time ago. But I think Gary Pruitt, who is head of the AP now, only found out about it over this weekend. The reason, apparently, that they were frisking through AP's phone records Was really because of a story that ran in May 2012 about a CIA operation, I think in Yemen, um, which foiled a a terrorist plot, put a bomb on a plane, an Al Qaeda plot, and this caused a certain amount of, uh, you know, the the fact that this plot had been foiled was a leak, and actually, weirdly, there's a kind of a, a UK connection here as well because the British government had spies who were very much involved in the operation and did not want details of it leaking. So they
1: were, uh, they were trying to find out, essentially, you know, who, who leaked the story, and uh, at its most basic sense, w- w- which extension of the White House they rang through to. Uh, clearly more complicated than that, but that was the essence of it.
6: Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so really what they were doing was, was looking at phone records in and out of the AP, which was, as you know, in the US, uh, the press are protected by First Amendment rights. It doesn't mean that the government are not covertly looking at your data, uh, and it's worth pointing out that whilst we know about um, the phone records uh, having been looked at because that's, that's now that's now come out you know, we, we still don't know how much other data or information may have been requested uh, from other uh, outlets or sources the government put in a lot of requests in the U.S. to look at user data for for instance on for instance Google accounts and whilst Google logs the fact that they've been asked for records they don't say I mean, they said they complied with them, but you would never know if they handed uh, if they handed data over to the feds. Um, so there's been that there's already a tense relationship here between the White House and the press. Obama is, uh, has has always been seen actually as a pretty distant president, and has an administration which is fairly hostile to the press. But this has really been, you know, an, an extremely sort of tense, tense episode. And of course, you know, even even the liberal press here, who would generally speaking be, be very reluctant to criticise the White House, have been have been outraged by it.
1: Do you think people have been comparing it to Nixon and, and, and Watergate? What do you think? Is that taking it too far? Or How big a scandal do you think this could become?
6: Well, um, it's you know it, it, it's it, it's hard to say. And obviously, with with Nixon and Watergate, you have a sort of slightly different set of circumstances. You know that the, the the difference between Nixon and um, this is really. The, the sort of the flag of uh, what you might call, you know, homeland security. So, one of the points of tension in America at the moment is how much individual freedoms and freedom of speech are curtailed under this sort of flag of protecting national security. And since 9 11, there's been really a sort of a wholesale. Tightening of all manner of sort of not just kind of freedom of, uh, if you like, sort of free freedom of expression, but it's almost like you know since 9/11 it is the trump card which has allowed this wholesale sort of government move into the realm of uh, into the realm of liberties. So whether it's going through the AP's phone records or whether it's everybody having to be you know x-rays at airports, this is a realm where it's just become if you like, sort of culturally more acceptable for the government to do this. I think what's different maybe about this is that everybody who is uh, involved in the press is very much up in arms about it.
1: Okay, okay. Well, the Obama administration, not the only people who are exposed, is doing a bit of snooping uh, this week. Also, uh, Bloomberg News, Emily, which has been taking uh, what you might call an unhealthy interest in the activities of, of bankers and their clients.
6: Yeah, well this is a this is a really sort of um, extraordinary story in a way. Uh so Goldman Sachs complained to Bloomberg, um, the, the business not the mayor, though it's worth saying that they are pretty much the same thing. It had come to their notice that Bloomberg journalists working on the uh financial journalism side of the business had been looking at uh what they thought was private information, which is logged on Bloomberg terminals used by traders only if you like the other side the sort of the real-time data side of the business that banks you know all banks sign up to Bloomberg or Reuters and have these terminals on their desks and they use them to, to, for information and, and trading uh, and what had happened was a Bloomberg journalist has actually rung somebody at Goldman Sachs and said I was so-and-so still employed here uh, and they said, "Well, you know, <laughs> why would you ask that?" And said, "Well, we we know we notice he hasn't been logged on to his terminal for two weeks. Uh, now, 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 the fact it, it, it now emerges that Bloomberg journalists have always been sort of able to look at certain things on uh, t- terminals used by by Bloomberg clients, including uh, hilariously the help chat logs. Um, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but one journalist describes describes saying that on s- slow slow afternoons they used to." Enjoy reading Alan Greenspan's help chat logs. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I guess that, I mean, that, you know, this is a big story. Uh, there are, it's very interesting, there are lots of journalists who say things like, well, it's not that big a deal, rather in the same way as you remember in about 2006, people were saying, phone hacking is not really a big deal. Um, and
1: <laughs> this, is just, this is just a rogue trader. Yeah. It's,
6: or or just, just like, oh, but this is just information we all have access to. I think the really big story is that you know, Bloomberg has not been entirely clear with its clients about how much of its information is shared with which bits of the business. And in another market, I think this would have been really disastrous for them. But uh, interestingly, they have such a sort of a dominant position in terms of the real-time data market. That even though both J.P. Morgan and uh, Goldman Sachs have complained about it, there's not a great deal they can do. You know, there isn't like a sort of a thousand other suppliers who can who can give them sort of these great kind of info terminals to sit on their desk. So it's proved two things. One of which is that Bloomberg was being a little bit slippery with what what it was telling its clients about who could see what and when. And and the other thing is that um, it just proves that they've actually got a pretty dominant position in the. Uh, in, in the trading terminals market.
1: Okay, Emily. Well, thank you very much for that. And uh, anything else going on state side? Well, plenty going on state side. But um, okay. anything else you want to bring to media talks attention?
6: I was going to say it's um uh, it's a bit early in the morning here. Is I it? To, yes, I have to actually leave the apartment to find out what's going on in the
2: world.
6: <laughs> All right. Well, there are these things called the basketball playoffs where people bounce a ball around and throw it into a into a hoop, but you wouldn't. Wouldn't be interested in that over
1: there. I saw one of those once in a bar when I was in New York alone and it was it was a, it was a lonely man's best friend.
6: Yeah, I know they're mostly put on for the tourists, it has
1: to be yeah. said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Emily, thank you very much.
7: This week on the Guardian Audio Edition,
1: Paul Harris and Ed Pilkington in the US report on the Ohio kidnapping. Tobias Jones on the murder of an Italian paparazzo, a tale of bunga bunga, blackmail and organised crime. And in our audiobook review, we turn to Life Writing, with Simon Armitage's Walking Home and Julian Barnes's Levels of Life.
7: To subscribe for free to The Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash Guardian, or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Boom. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture.
1: And now it's time to talk TV, and I'm glad to have been joined by Rebecca Nicholson, the Guardian's TV and radio editor. Hello. Hello. And down the line, all the way from Malmo, probably, it's our re- resident, uh, well not resident because he doesn't live here, but he is a Eurovision expert, it's Mr. Dave Simpson. Dave, welcome. Hello, Malmo, I wish. Where are you? Putney? Uh, Finchley. Finchley? Yeah, I'm at work. Well, <laughs> oh, I got the second syllable right, it's not bad, is it? No. Not exactly Darren Brown, but anyway, talking about making predictions and being spookily accurate about things we can't possibly know about, how is Bonnie Tyler going to do our Saturday's Eurovision, Dave?
8: I don't know if she'll be in the bottom five, but I think she'll be in the bottom half. <laughs> so <laughs> wildly optimistic? Mildly optimistic. Not in the bottom five? Her, I don't think.
1: Maybe she'll pin that on her dressing room door as she walks out just to give her the boost she needs.
8: Maybe, yeah. Or she might pop. <laughs> she might.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. Yes. Rebecca, are you a big Eurovision fan? Are you excited?
7: I am excited about this year. I've I've read lots about it. Um, I'm, I'm taken aback. I'm, I'm I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I mean, who knew that I liked pop music?
1: <laughs> Dave, I'm not inspired because Bonnie Tyler just feels like a bit like Engelbert Humperdinck, but but not as dynamic. So kind of repeating last year's mistake, but but you know, less interestingly.
8: Well, she is a generation younger, but she's still a generation past relevant, I think. So it, I think the BBC is still clutching its straws to get people to actually join. And you'll know all
1: about this, but the way that we select the candidate has sort of changed and the BBC now is, takes responsibility. I mean, if they make another balls up, is there going to be a you know, massive clamour of you know, several people saying that you know, they should uh, you know, give, the, um, give the choice back to the viewers like it used to be?
8: Well, it's an internal selection. It has been since blue, but uh, I know Germany turned it around by doing much bigger events where the public got to vote in a whole tour around the country. So they used to always be bottom five and in the last few years have been in the top half of the table all the time because they're getting better, more relevant music.
1: Rebecca, we need to get Cal involved.
7: Or we could <laughs> scrape off the, uh, this is a disgusting metaphor, scrape off the residue of the voice and yeah. uh, and take what they've what they don't want or even take what they do want. What they do want doesn't seem to do anything anyway, so... Yeah, just
1: have the voice winner us. Yeah. That's a good idea, because, you know, there's one more appearance on TV than the, than the last one it got <laughs> when the series ended. Uh, but, Dave, all right, so, so Bonnie's probably not going to win. Uh, mm. But who might win? And also give us, uh, give us the comedy act to look out for, too. If we only see one Eurovision act, who should uh, we see?
8: Okay, if you only see one, it's probably not even going to get to the final, but you might want a YouTube Romania's act. It's a dubstep opera. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, and what are they called? I'm testing your knowledge here.
8: His name's Cesar, and it's, it's called Love is So High.
1: And it, it used to be in a duet and called Pair of Cisars.
8: because he kind of sings it quite high-pitched.
1: Right, right. Well, I look forward to that. It's so, a Romania, so they might, they might not, they might not uh, make the final. But gives, I'm, I'm off to... Um, I've got my £20 free bet from uh, registering online with Labrook. So who should I stick it on?
8: Well, this year it's really difficult, because it's probably the most open year in quite a few years. So it even it comes down to the running order, which will be decided early on Friday morning... Um, but if I was going to put a bet on it at the moment, it would probably be Azerbaijan. Really? It's a strong song, and they've got a brilliant gimmick with a man in a glass box upside down mirroring the singer as he sings, and it kind of works.
1: I love it. So, you're not like, choosing that just because it's at the top of your alphabetical list, are you? You really do think this might win?
8: Yeah, and also the last uh, in this first semi, most of the Balkans were cleared out, and there's no Turkey, so all the regional votes will go to Azerbaijan. I mean, you're in Georgia and that area. So, yeah, I've, I think it'll do well. Um, but as I said, it's wide open this year, so um, who knows who could win it.
1: I like, Rebecca, I like the sound of a man in a box, upside down, impersonating the singer.
7: And on one of the semi-finals, I saw a lady in a dress, like a big uh, a big skirt that just got higher and higher, and she got higher and higher and higher. That was my favourite gimmick.
1: Well, on that note, Dave, thank you very much. Enjoy the show. I will do. And uh, same time next year? Yep, same time. Looking forward to it already. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a lot. See you, bye. Well, that's Eurovision, um, which will be a massive highlight of the week, uh, Rebecca. But what, what else? What else got your attention this week?
7: Uh, the Fall, which debuted on Monday, Gillian Anderson as a tough cop lady, and Jamie Dornan as the serial killer. Not so much the who done it, but the he done it. And why done it? <laughs> and why he done and, it?
1: <laughs> and it was very, very popular. It
7: was. It was BBC Two's highest-rated drama launch since 2005. It got uh, 3.6 million viewers. We had a couple of things on the website about it. Lots of people seemed to want to talk about it. I think it was just very sophisticated. It was very well done. The acting was great. I was particularly... I mean, Anderson tends to to do well in most BBC things that she does. But I thought Jamie Dornan especially was terrifying as a kind of handsome, evil serial killer. And it raised an interesting question about the way that it portrayed the bodies. There were lots of kind of artfully posed bodies in there. And I think it, their, their intention was to get inside the mind of a serial killer in a way that we haven't before. I think that's very dangerous territory. In lesser hands, it could have been gratuitous. But actually, it was done so well that I think they just about got away with it. So another four parts to come. Next week, it goes a little bit deeper inside uh, the Troubles. It explores its Belfast setting a bit more. But I'm pleased it's doing well. I think it's a great show.
1: I must remember to watch it on iPlayer before the seven day window shuts. And also this week uh, is the Doctor Who season finale.
7: Yes, well I, I've decided to get into Doctor Who having not been previously a fan. For the last
1: 50 years. For the last
7: 50 years because it feels like it's something that people love to talk about and I, I think in the in the interest of getting on with my new job I should really know a little bit about it. So I've watched a couple of Appenable. episodes this series. I've enjoyed both of them. Uh, the Crimson Horror was one I particularly enjoyed. But having spoken to some Doctor Who fans it seems like this series has really divided people lots of people thought it's been terrible ratings are down um, so it's a season finale on Saturday season finale makes it sound terribly American doesn't it season finale America's in a bit of trouble because they sent out the Blu-ray of the series early and leaked this last 10 minutes of the show which oh, hang on. even as journalists haven't been allowed to see they've sent out previews of the episodes with not, not the last bit chopped off uh, like they used to do with The Apprentice but they don't anymore well, that's
1: not um, So has it spoiled it for millions of people or are the people who watched it keeping it under wraps?
7: Most people are keeping it under wraps. Someone hacked the Wikipedia page and posted this big spoiler on there. But the, the series creators have appealed to fans' better natures. And it seems to have been. I mean, I don't know what it is. Uh, so I, I probably wouldn't understand what it was, given that, you know, I've watched two episodes of this series. But I'm really trying.
1: I want to try and guess, but I might guess right. Are and you, then, are you yeah. a fan? No, I haven't watched it since uh, since uh, Chris Eccleston. Oh, So that's a while ago. So you
7: could, I mean, who knows what's going on.
1: And it's back, of course, later in the year with the 50th uh, anniversary special. Yes, later this year. More of that on Media Talk coming soon and on the TV and radio website The Guardian, of course. Lots, lots more. My thanks to Rebecca Nicholson and to all this week's guests who were Matt Deegan, Lisa Campbell, Mike Smith, Emily Bell, Dave Simpson and, of course, John Humphreys. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill and you can leave your thoughts on our blog or our Facebook wall or you can tweet me at John Plunkett 149 which is also my name, but without the 149 bit.
0: Thanks for listening! For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.